Hi, my name is Laura. I'm a pediatric emergency room nurse, and welcome back to Let's Chat Healthcare. Today, I'm speaking with Diana. She's a nurse practitioner that specializes in strokes. We talk a lot about strokes. We talk about what they are, how to prevent them, and what to do if you have one. We also talk about nurse practitioners. Diana's very well educated, and I really appreciate her perspective. I had a great time talking to her. Don't forget to press the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes are released and find us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare. I hope you enjoy the episode. I think it's really important information. And if you're interested, check out our Instagram for some awesome resources on strokes. All right, here's Diana. Hi, Diana. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Laura. I'm excited to be here and talk to you today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I think it's going to be a good conversation. Um, so I thought that we could start off by you kind of telling us your journey and the healthcare field, like your career journey and like where you started kind of up to where you are now, however much detail like you want to go into. Sure. Um, so I started off um, many moons ago. I actually am a second career nurse. So I went straight out of high school. I went to UCLA and I got a degree in psychology and sociology. And I started working in developmental psychology at UCLA. Mm. Uh, I had originally been uh, th thinking about pre-med um, and decided not to pursue it. It was not a very enjoyable experience in my undergrad. And so I decided to pursue some of the, my other passions at the time. But uh, as I was working, I knew that I wanted to go back to school. And the more that I thought about what I wanted to do with my life, I knew that healthcare um, was really something I was passionate about and interested in since I was younger. So I thought about doing a post back program, going into med school again. Um, and then uh, it was really important and I was really lucky to have great mentors at the, at the time that kind of understood my personality and said, you know what, well, do you really want to do that much schooling? And are you sure you want to be a doctor? You might want to pursue other career, a different career path. So one of my mentors suggested, why don't you uh, look into being a nurse practitioner? And at that moment, I knew nothing about what nurse practitioner was or even nursing. And I decided to do my homework, kind of research about it mm -hmm. um, and understand what it was. And so I thought, okay, I could do that. I can still see patients. I have some autonomy, but I also have a lot more say in terms of my time, less schooling and flexibility and certain things that were important to me. And so I was at that time in a full-time job with benefits at UCLA. And it was a little scary to quit my job and start all over, go back to school to do my prereqs. But I really said, you know, this is what I want to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I took a, a big leap. I quit my job. I went back to school. I did um, two community colleges at a time to do all my prereqs in oh, one wow. year. Oh, my gosh. I <laughs> yeah, I really hustled because uh, I knew I didn't want it to take forever. And I had heard horror stories about people, you know, kind of getting lost in the system because of the availability of classes. And so you then graduate with a bachelor's in nursing, start working, and you finish your master's as you go. And so ideally, it'll take you about two to three years to complete your master's after the bachelor's, depending on how much schooling you take at a time. I graduated at the end of, I think, 2014. And then I started um, 
as a nurse on a stroke teleunit. So a stroke teleunit, you specialize in seeing stroke patients. Um, and so that's really the focus of your unit. But you also see a lot of cardiac patients. All of them are on uh, heart monitors. So you are constantly um, analyzing rhythms. These are people that could have changes in rhythms and changing conditions. Mm -hmm. And so they're usually at a four to one ratio on these floors, but you can also get patients that are ventilated, uh, patients that have uh, feeding tubes that are total care mm -hmm. in a sense that they require assistance with every activity. Oh, that's um, a pretty heavy so unit, especially like even stroke patients, they can be pretty heavy patients because yeah. they require a lot of assistance. Yeah, and I think it was more of like a step down unit in a sense. Like I said, we had we would have code blues to rapid responses, mm -hmm. um, and really people don't realize how much help a stroke patient needs. Yeah, from, I think I think so too. <laughs> from yeah, from physical to mental um, to just education wise. Um, I also worked at a very underserved population uh, area. So that obviously required um, a lot of uh, different types of skills. It did help that I'm Spanish speaking. So that was a plus. Mm. Um, and so I was there for two years and a half. I was very lucky that it was the unit where I did my last nursing rotation. And I made a good impression and I was able to get a job out of nursing school. That's awesome. And then I stayed there for about two and a half years. And then I I knew that I was on my path to become a nurse practitioner. I was still taking my classes, doing, um, you know, planning for clinicals. And so I knew that I wanted to see a broader range of patients. So I decided to transition to the ER at that time. Mm -hmm. So I transitioned to the ER and I was there for another two and a half years. Uh, and so that was a incredible learning opportunity. And uh, I think it definitely helped me and prepared me for um, all of my roles that I've had since then. So, um, and then I finished uh, my MP school, finally, <laughs> and it was kind of right before COVID. And so I had been like, um, you know, when you're doing clinicals, you're working full time because I always worked full time. And um, um, and I didn't really rush to take boards because I also didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and so I uh, ended oh, up delaying I, my... Sorry, real quick. By not knowing what you wanted to do, what does that mean? Like you didn't know like which, what kind of patients you wanted to work with or like what field you wanted to study in? So I didn't know what type of role as a nurse practitioner I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I wanted to still work with patients. I knew that I wanted a flexible schedule mm -hmm. and that I, but I also knew that I liked the hospital setting and it's really hard to find some, um, you know, in hospital setting mm -hmm. role as a nurse practitioner, especially because I'm a family nurse practitioner. So there's different types of nurse practitioners. I love what you said earlier where you were like, I didn't even know what an NP is, so I did my research. I was wondering yeah, if you well, could give us a quick summary of like what you found from that research. Yeah, so um, so back then when I researched it, it, it was kind of a um, I like to call it a like in a sense like a like a doctor, but you're a nurse in a sense, like a like a baby doctor is what I used to call <laughs> it when I first started, right? Not really knowing what it was. And basically you're a mid-level provider. You can diagnose, you can prescribe, you can see patients, but in a lot of states, uh, including California, you have to be in a way um overseen by a, a doctor. Mm -hmm. So there's somebody that vouches for you in a sense. Um 
Now that can vary depending on the role, where you are, who you're working with, the provider, but somebody basically at the end of the line is um, kind of like, you know, signing for you and saying you are safe to practice, you're doing the right thing in a sense. Um, uh, a PA, the difference is a PA goes to school three years after obtaining a uh, an undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. And during those three years, they do their schooling, they do their clinicals, and then they're able to practice. Um, the difference a little bit, and I don't know too much, and it also varies by state, but a PA is not able to independently diagnose and prescribe mm. uh, in any state versus nurses now, nurse practitioners have independence in some states. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And so a PA also has to be... Um, it's under a doctor as well. But in my experience, from my from what I've seen with a lot of nurse practitioners, a PA tends to have a lot less flexibility in terms of switching specialty. Most of them are very specialized. And so it's, it's, uh, it is possible to unspecialize and do something else, but it just becomes challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other just different scopes of practice, depending where you go, um, th- that differentiate an NP from a PA and obviously the schooling. Mm-hmm. A nurse has already had a bachelor's in nursing, had experience as a nurse, uh, and now they're just doing a different type. Uh, they're taking on a new responsibilities mm-hmm. in a sense. So back then, I didn't really understand exactly what the role was. Um, Now, where I am now, and as I was in school, there really is so many things that an NP can do. And and it's kind of um, goes side in hand, side to side with the with the role of a nurse, you can do so many things as a nurse. Uh, You can work in law, you can work at a clinic, you can work at urgent care, you can specialize and be a cardiac um, nurse practitioner, a neurology nurse practitioner. There are just so many Mm -hmm. roles that you can take on. And that's kind of what you meant when you said like you didn't know exactly where you wanted to be after school, right? Right. So for me, again, I, I like the hospital setting. So I knew that I wasn't ready to let that go yet. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to rush into the, into anything because I had a stable job. I was an ER nurse. I was still learning every day. You still learn every single day as an ER nurse or in any field that you're, that any nursing role that you are in. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to wait until something comes up that's right for me. And so eventually it did. And um, it kind of came to me instead of me looking (laughs) for it. Um, I was working. And at that time, um, I got two offers. One was to be a cardiology NP for a doctor. And at the same time, um, within the hospital, they were looking for a new stroke coordinator. And they were looking to make that role and expand it into a nurse practitioner role. And so... um, I kind of had those two at the same time and I decided to go with uh, being the stroke coordinator Mm -hmm. or stroke program manager, as some people call it, um, at my hospital. And so then I came back to the sixth floor as the (laughs) manager of the stroke program. The other thing is that I'm kind of carving out this role in a sense. So um, just as a little bit of history, the nurse practitioner role here in California isn't really super developed in some areas. And I think it's always changing, right? Like, I feel like they just increased like the scope of practice just last year. Right. So a bill passed last year where uh, I believe if you have three years of experience now in California, uh, and I think it's not going to go into effect um, until, I, I mean, I'm not sure about the dates, yeah. but 
uh, you need three years of experience under your belt, and then you can technically practice independently. Yeah, I saw that. That's yeah. crazy. And so with independent practice now, you're having practitioners that are seeing patients, doing all of the workup, doing the follow-up that are now going to be able to also bill for that and really mm -hmm. claim all of that mm -hmm. uh, and start their own businesses, start their own practices. And so you'll be able to reach a lot more patients. And so that's really the important thing and the reason why a lot of nurses really worked very hard to be able to rally and put come together um, to be able to pass that bill. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like such a big opportunity. It is. So getting back to the stroke coordinator, so you're still a stroke coordinator, right? Um, but it's a little bit different now? Yes. Yeah, so I recently switched jobs. I was managing a primary stroke center. So a primary stroke center, in a sense, you can do interventions for stroke, but they are a bit limited. You can only give uh, medication and that's all to place. Mm -hmm. And then if the patient requires further intervention, so if they require major sur major uh, brain surgery in a sense for a bleed, or if they require clot retrieval, which would be thrombectomy, then you have to transfer them to a comprehensive stroke center. Mm -hmm. And a comprehensive stroke center is where you can do really anything um, in terms of uh, more interventional. Mm -hmm. And so I went from being, uh, from managing a primary stroke center to now managing a comprehensive stroke center. Oh, that's awesome. I, I never knew the difference myself. <laughs> yeah. So it's, there's a lot, I'd never even realized so much until I got really, really into the, the leadership role of all the little components of stroke. Mm -hmm. It's a very time sensitive, um, Jeffrey L. Saver from UCLA. He is one of the top, um, researchers in terms of stroke. And he coined that phrase that says time is brain mm -hmm. when he did research to be able to find how many neurons die per second uh, during a stroke. And so because of that, um, and because, you know, you are losing with uh, brain, you are losing a lot of function, not only physical, but also cognitive. Um, you want to make sure that stroke interventions are very timely from mm -hmm. the door to the time you give medication to the time they go to CT to the time they have all of these different components of uh, workup that they need. It's a very time sensitive uh, program. And so there's so many kind of moving parts. There's so much interdisciplinary co uh, collaboration. Um, and there are so many metrics as well that you need to meet to be able to get certification. That makes sense so, why your role was formed then to coordinate all that. Yeah. And in, in the more I learn about the role, because I really am still learning. Um, I'm, I'm a baby coordinator because <laughs> I really am just learning um, about so many things. And there's new guidelines coming up um, almost every two years. So, you know, there was some in 2019 with new updates. There's some that just came up this year. Um, and so you also have to constantly be educating yourself in terms of the new guidelines, the best practice for patients, uh, new protocols, new medications also. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really a constantly learning role. And a lot of hospitals are moving towards wanting a nurse practitioner to lead and really uh, fill these job roles. Mm -hmm. And I was very curious because I never really understood why until now. And I think it's because... Was, was I not a nurse practitioner? Had I not had stroke tele experience? Had I not had ER experience? Had I not had, you know, my schooling 
um, my rotations in in the clinic, you know, I really wouldn't be able to, I think, to put together so many pieces uh, and really understand the whole picture of healthcare and really understand just the little pieces that come together and how we all, you know, fit into that big puzzle. That's awesome. I would, I would love to talk more about that, actually, about how just kind of like from when a patient comes into the hospital with a stroke, like comes into the emergency room, like what that process is. But maybe we can go even further real quick. Like it doesn't have to be elaborate, but can you just, this is kind of a general question, but <laughs> what is a stroke? So a stroke, there are two types. Um, there is a hemorrhagic or an ischemic stroke. Most strokes are ischemic, um, and that is usually caused by a clot that is occluding a vessel. In your and brain, when that, right? In your brain, correct. And when that vessel is occluded in your brain, it causes those cells that are no longer receiving the blood to slowly die. And that's where the phrase comes in, the time is brain phrase. Correct. Because the more time that elapses uh, with that blockage, the more brain tissue that dies and the more function that is lost, depending on where in your brain um, the stroke is occurring. Now, a bleed or what you call a hemorrhagic stroke happens um, when uh, either there is an aneurysm of some type that bursts in your brain, or there is a rupture of a vessel that creates um, that leaking of blood into the brain tissue, which also kills uh, the brain tissue. Mm -hmm. So you also result from, you also have brain damage and have different deficits that have, that come from that uh, brain tissue loss. And so in each of these cases, there are some things that some certain interventions that we can do, Mm -hmm. uh, but they are very time sensitive. Okay. So there's someone and they think they're having a stroke. They have the classic symptoms. They have like one-sided weakness or slurred speech, they call 911. Can you kind of walk us through the process of like what happens? Yeah, of course. So before that, I do want to talk about the symptoms. Very important. Yes. Because um, strokes happen all the time. You know, every few seconds there's a stroke happening in this country. So um, especially with your risk factors. So basically when to when to call 911 or come into the hospital if you're feeling anything. So the acronym is called Be Fast, obviously. So Be Fast, and maybe some people call it as just fast. Um, but again, there is either um, weakness, sometimes there's confusion, there's dizziness, and a lot of these changes are sudden. Some of them happen over a few days. There's deficits in either an upper extremity or lower extremity. You have the sudden inability to be able to speak, um, or you have what's called slurred speech in a sense, or you also have that mumbling that's called the slurred speech, sorry. Um, and then you also could have facial drooping on one side of the of the mouth usually or the face. Mm-hmm. Um or visual changes, uh, where the pa- person suddenly has uh, seeing double or seeing blurry or not seeing well from from one eye in that sense, or in any case of those um, symptoms, you should come in. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, any headache that's the strongest headache of your life, you definitely want to come into the ER and come in right away, right? Because exactly time is brain. right away. <laughs> yes, and brain. if you're and if your family member is having these symptoms, you should call nine one one. Don't wait. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges right now that we're seeing, especially with COVID. Stroke numbers dropped drastically throughout um, LA County. 
where we were having initially 30 stroke alerts, we were having four in a month, three in a month. And And people are not not having strokes, right? They're just correct. So people are just coming in and they're coming in too late. They're coming in again. We can only help you usually within the first 24 hours over those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And if you're having, um, an ischemic stroke and we need to give you medication, we can only really help you within the first 4.5 hours of those symptoms onset. Wow, so you need so soon. Right away. Yes. So you need to come right away. Um, and so if your, your family member or whomever is experiencing any of the systems, just call 911 and have them come. And that was a challenge during COVID. People were scared to come in. Uh, people were waiting. And then they were coming in a lot sicker and a lot uh, with a lot more deficits because they had waited. Um, and so uh, those vo- that volume definitely dropped. So then we'll go into going uh, to the to the kind of talking about what happens in the ER. So you'll walk into the ER or you're brought by the in an ambulance. Um, if your paramedics have identified that you're having a stroke, they'll call the hospital and tell them, hey, we're bringing a patient. It's a possible stroke. And then usually in the hospital, as soon as a stroke is identified, they'll do a stroke alert which is basically a paging throughout the whole hospital that says code stroke ER or wherever the patient is. And this really brings all of the team members to you so we can get everything done as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So the moment that person walks in, depending on what hospital you are, you're going to have blood drawn. You're going to have an EKG, which is a test that monitor that uh, checks for your heart rhythm. You are going to have a, um, uh, lines put in you an IV line, and then you're going to be transported um, to have a a CT of your brain done as soon as possible. The the doctor is going to see you. They're going to ask you a lot about the the history of your symptoms, your medical history, any recent surgery. They're going to ask you about your medications, the last time that you felt normal or your last known well. And really all that information is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to go straight into um, CT to make sure uh, and do a, a CT of your brain. And what we're looking for is to see, do you have a brain bleed? Mm-hmm. If it's those two different types of stroke you talked about, right? If it's the Correct. ischemic do one or have. the hemorrhagic. Correct. Now, the, the challenge is that um, the CT brain is really uh, the fastest test that we can do of your brain, the, fra- the fastest scan, but it does not going to tell us if you had a, an ischemic stroke. An ischemic stroke doesn't usually show up on a CT until about 24 hours. But a hemorrhagic um, so, one would. Yes. So okay. a hemorrhagic one, one shows right away and it's bright white and we can see it right away. So we know if you have a bleed right away. Uh, And then based on your symptoms, your history, your medications, uh, and how bad your deficits are, um, then if you are coming in within the first 4.5 hours of your symptoms, we can give you, and you don't have a bleed in your brain, then we can give you a medication called Altaplace. And this medication is a thrombolytic, which means it breaks down clots. We give it to you through your vein. And... uh, It requires a lot of monitoring after giving this medication. You would go straight to the ICU. And so the hope is that this medication will get up to your brain uh, as soon as possible and help to break down a little bit of that clot that's blocking the vessel Mm -hmm. and to hopefully be able to get to salvage some of that brain tissue. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you'll be getting a lot of other different scans. There's a lot of different scans of the brain. So a CT angiogram um, basically shows us, I like to tell people it's like a roadmap. It shows us all the vessels in your brain and in your neck. And it shows us if there is a clot where we can find it. Mm. Um, it's kind of like a roadmap for um, neurosurgeons and neurointerventionalists and neurologists. And then we're going to also do a CT perfusion of your brain. Um, and this is basically a scan that tells us, um, is there tissue in your brain that is um, not receiving correct perfusion or not receiving the correct amount of blood and therefore it could be dying and how much tissue is affected by this and how much um, tissue can we possibly save so it gives you like a brain uh, a color map of your brain in a sense and it tells us where the blockage is in a color map and then how much tissue is alive depending on the different color gradients, depending on how much it's uh, how much blood the scan sees going in and out of these t- the tissue. Mm. And so that really allows the neurointerventionalist to decide, can I go into your brain and remove the clot? And is it in a place where I can reach it? And then also, is it worth doing all of that? Because obviously there's risks that come with everything. There's risks that come with giving you the medication and there's risks that come with giving you this intervention. Mm -hmm. And so based on all of those studies, your history, your activity level before you had your stroke um, and a lot of other components, then the neurointerventionalist will decide if you are a candidate for thrombectomy. And in thrombectomy, then you would um, be intubated, sedated, and then you go to cath lab. And in cath lab is a place where they do um, the procedures. So they would go in through your groin and all the way up uh, with a sheath or like a little a little uh, thin wire that goes all the way up um, through your um from your groin all the way up through your carotids up into your brain and eventually comes to the place where the clot is. Mm, and it's a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, and so they're able to either um, do apply a little bit of suction to remove the clot or in a way um, they also release like a, like a little net mm-hmm. that pulls the clot and traps it. Think of like a fishing net mm-hmm. that they put your vessel and they deploy and then they leave it there for about four minutes and then they pull the net and the idea is that the clot will come and be caught in that net and then they'll pull it out again go down the carotids down through um through the abdominal um and then all the way out of your groin that's crazy (laughs) insane and so um that's what you call thrombectomy Now, in the case of the bleeds, um, the bleeds happen because sometimes there's little balloons in your head that you don't know about. You could have them and you don't even know. Um, And these little balloons um, kind of balloon out of your blood vessels and create little kind of balloons of blood. Um, It's called an aneurysm. And when that aneurysm bursts, there's sometimes no reason why it bursts, but some of those can be really deadly. And if you have a bleed, they are a lot deadlier than an actual ischemic stroke. Mm. 
and usually people will also have a lot more deficits with a bleed. Mm -hmm. But luckily, most people, uh, I believe it's only about 8% or so, 10% that are, um, that of strokes that are bleeds. Most of them are ischemic. Oh, okay. When I've seen them, I've, I just never get like bored of them. It's so amazing. I think it's incredible. It's just so humbling to to know what we can do. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, but again, it's, it's like, uh, it's, there's a lot of components that go into it. So even though it, it's so cool and, um, we wish we could do that for everybody, we can't. Um, and it's only a few cases that actually qualify to be able to get that intervention. Mm-hmm. It, and it, it just kind of depends on what type of stroke you have. It depends on so many things. So it depends on the medications you're taking, Mm -hmm. uh, how old you are, you know, whether you were completely independent versus not in the beginning, there is risk. So if you want to obviously go through with that risk, it depends on your comorbidities. It depends on your recent surgeries. It just depends on a lot of things where the clot is too. You know, is it worth it to go in and, and, and get the clot? You know, is there enough brain tissue to save? Um, it's really like a lot of decisions that go into deciding whether or not to do it. And it's kind of fascinating to, yeah, to be I feel like part that of was, that. I feel like you just gave us a quick overview, but it was also like so much. So yeah, it is. So and, much goes into it. And there's so many moving components in it. I think that's, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of like an orchestra. There's so many team members everybody's doing their part. Everybody's doing a different part. That's just as important. And you all come together to treat this one stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and, and they happen so often, you know, in our hospital, I think we have about 80 stroke alerts a month. Oh, wow. Um, so of those patients, however, you only have about maybe two or three of them that get thrombectomy. Oh, okay. And you only have maybe about, five maximum that get TPA, uh, maybe oh, okay. five to six. I thought it would or, be more. No. Um, it, it's, it's like I said, it's a lot of components and mm-hmm. a lot of different um, things that go into a, a qualifying a, pa- a patient for those interventions. But um, again, a lot of my job is fixing the processes, making sure that when we are passing the baton from one team to the other, it's going smoothly, that everybody knows what they what is expected of them that we are setting um realistic goals that we are obviously adhering to our time goals mm-hmm. um so it's a lot of kind of managing a lot of moving parts and a lot of teams yeah it sounds like it <laughs> yeah so kind of some key takeaways for patients from your story i feel like um maybe our if you feel like you might be having stroke symptoms, like the symptoms that you talked about, go into the emergency room right away or call 911 right away because you can only give that medication within the 4.5 hours of when the symptoms started, right? Right. So super important. People don't think about stroke so much as, as much as they think about heart attacks, yeah, I think. I feel like and, that and that's, too, yeah. And that's really unfortunate because... Um, you know, really, there's a lot of, you know, really cool uh, technology that has come with cardiac um, and what you can do and a lot of different interventions. And, uh, and so with stroke, really, you only have one brain. And unfortunately, you know, stroke isn't the leading cause of death, especially not right now, but it is the leading cause of disability. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. Yeah. Um, 
when you've had a stroke, your life may never be the same again. You may never walk again sometimes. You may never eat again for some patients. You may never talk again. You know, you may never be able to, you know, just walk down the street independently or put on a shirt or go back to work, which is a huge issue. A lot of these patients are the breadwinners of their family. Mm. A lot of them are still working. Um, and unfortunately, we are seeing stroke people strokes having strokes younger and younger and younger. I think we had a patient this last week that had thrombectomy and was 33. Oh my gosh. And I, it's just, yeah, we had a patient, I had a patient uh, not too long ago that um, was uh, 31. Oh my he was gosh. basically healthy. And luckily for him, it was just a few visual um, changes with one of his eyes that he's never going to recover from, but it wasn't a huge deficit uh, in the sense where he can still go back to work. You live a mostly normal life, um, but the brain loss and the tissue that's been damaged um, and the function that you've lost with a stroke is never going to come back. And so I think that's what people don't really talk about. And then not only that, but the burden afterwards, right? So the, we don't talk enough about the family members that become full-time caregivers. We don't talk about, you know, the fact that now someone needs to help you to the toilet. Someone needs to help you dress uh, and the financial cost that comes with that. Um, and the fact that people who stroke are, you know, 15, 20, 30% likely again to restroke again if they don't um, take care of the comorbidities. So there's certain things that you can do to prevent a stroke. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. So what we call is modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So modifiable, um, non-modifiable risk factors are ones you can't change, you're born with. And these are your sex, right? Your age, your ethnicity, uh, your family history. Uh, and so those, and then certain genetic diseases that may make you more prone, but those are, the, so those are some of the, the factors that you can't change about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, it is who you are, but there's a lot of modifiable risk factors that you can change, um, that may decrease your chances for strokes. So not being overweight, not having hypertension, not having diabetes, having low cholesterol, not smoking, not drinking, not doing drugs, um, you know, all of those things can put you at higher risk uh, for a stroke, not taking your medications if you do have those conditions mm -hmm. um, or not being compliant. It's, it's a huge issue. Uh, and so all of those things are really, really unfortunate because a lot of the strokes are preventable. That's crazy. And it's crazy the technology that we have and the treatment that we've developed. I mean, I'm thankful to be living in a time when we have this treatment and I'm sure it hasn't been very long that we've had it, right? Like how long have thrombectomies been around? I believe the the research literally came out, I think it was in, and I'm not the best with these years, but it's been <laughs> less than 20 years oh that we can gosh. do thrombectomies. And I think, so, I think the first comprehensive center here in LA was Glendale Adventist. Um, and they went, I believe, got certified, if I'm not incorrect, um, in like 2017. That's so recent. Oh, my like gosh. That. 2017 or 2016, one of those years. Um, so it's it's such a growing um, 
in a sense of the knowledge that we're gaining and all that. So it's really exciting. Um, again, at, at the same time, it's kind of sad that it's kind of always overshadowed by kind of cardiac in a sense, but strokes yeah. are, are important. And I think it's, it's definitely, there's, there's a lot more to come in terms of the preventative uh, research. And uh, there's a lot of things going on in terms of researching really uh, minor strokes and uh, what they call transient ischemic attacks and a lot of med- new medications that are coming out that will hopefully expand the window of not just 4.5 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of new research that's coming up on what, what we call wake up strokes when a person wakes up. Um, so a lot of exciting things to come. Well, thank you so much for what you do. I mean, I mean, just with what you explained, which I I know is like the um, like the brief overview, it's so complicated and um, it takes a lot of coordination. So I can, I can tell that you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely never the same thing when you go to work. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about this. I, I feel like I learned so much and yeah, thank you so much for explaining everything. And I think that you're right. I think that strokes need to be talked about more and the awareness needs to be raised about it because I, I don't think enough people even know like that meds are time sensitive. And I think that time is brain phrase is really key. And I think it's catchy and can catch on well. So time is brain. No, yeah, of course. I'm always, uh, always excited to share. Um, So thank you. That was a great episode just full of information that's really important to know. I hope you guys enjoyed listening, and I hope you learned a lot from Diana. I feel like I learn something new every time I talk to her. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare, or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us. New episodes are uploaded the first and third Tuesdays of the month. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Let's Chat Healthcare.